Before we begin, I truly believe this has been a subject that has been over 30 years in the making. As we begin to embark on this particular series, and this is one that I've wanted to do personally for quite a long time, but it isn't simply a theological exercise in academics when we talk about the love of God. The love of God is most powerfully spoken about when it's personally experienced in the life of the individual. So our time together over the next several weeks will not only be that of the, of the Word uh, coming alive to us through the Spirit and allowing God to uh, show us the incredible depth and breadth and width of the love that He has for us, but it's also my story how the love of God rescued a 16-year-old young man who was destined for certain difficulties in life. It's my story in the fact that over the last 30-some years that I've walked with the Lord, I have seen and experienced the love of God to allow me to know that it's something much more than just a word contained on a page of an ancient book. It's something real. And understanding the love of God properly will transform the life of any follower of Jesus Christ. It is the basis, the foundation for the gospel of Jesus Christ that we prize so highly. It is what moved the hand of the Father to give as an offering, as a sacrifice, His only Son, His begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. It allows us to be adopted by our Heavenly Father and become joint heirs with Christ and then understanding who we are in the love of God in that position of adoption will change our whole perspective of ourselves and allow us an identity that the world has robbed us of. The love of God is one of the most significant subjects of the Bible. It can never be diminished, and I don't believe it ever can be spoken above, uh, about uh, too often. I once heard one of my favorite pastors, Chuck Smith, say, that there are certain passages that he just did not want to teach on. It wasn't because he didn't have the academic understanding or the theological understanding of what those passages meant. He was intimidated by their awesomeness, if I may say, their incredibly profound and uh, uh, incredibly robust nature. And he said that about John 3.16. The series I have entitled, For the Love of God. Now some of you, like me, may know that as a phrase of exasperation. A phrase that is often used when an individual is being corrected by their parents. For me, I grew up hearing this phrase. I gave my parents an abundant number of reasons to discipline me over the course of my first 16 years of life. There was never a shortage of reasons why I could be grounded at any particular time. In fact, often I was grounded and I would go back to my parents and say, how long am I grounded for? And they say, we've lost count. One summer afternoon, we saw that a neighbor's house was being resided with aluminum uh, siding. And these neighbors weren't very nice to us local kids. And so, of course, after they had the siding put on the house, it was white siding, we decided to spruce it up a little bit. And we spray painted the, almost the entire exterior of the house, six of us. And we were caught immediately because we were not the most brilliant criminals on the block. We were 14 for Pete's sakes. And I'll never forget standing there on the front porch with the officer who brought me home. And he says, 
Sir, I'm, I hate to inform you of this, but your son has been caught spray painting out. Dad, I didn't do it, but my hands were covered in paint. Of course, taking responsibility. And I just remember him looking at me next to the officer, and he says, for the love of God, what were you thinking? And it's a term that is, again, used by one who is surprised, one who is exasperated, one who is calling to God and saying, God, I need your love to get me past the idea of me, you know, killing this kid, you know. But I never realized that in all those times I've heard it in a disciplinary manner, how prophetic it was going to be in my personal life. For that love that my dad talked about, uh, you know, in a derogatory means was the same love that was going to transform my life from the little hooligan that I was to the man that I am today. It's my story. At 16 years old, I was angry. I was mad because I was adopted into a family that, of course, was riddled by alcoholism. When my mom drank, she became very angry and violent. I was mad at everyone. I was mad at them. I was mad at society around me. I was mad at those who placed me with them. I was mad in every single way possible, including that of being mad at God. How could God ever allow this to take place? I was adopted from a place called the Cradle in Evanston. And if you know anything about the cradle, a famous individual adopted children just prior to me being adopted. Bob Hope adopted his children from the cradle. I could have been Eric Hope. I missed it by this much. And now I find myself in the circumstances that I was, and I didn't understand them. Everything was working against me. I would fly off the handle emotionally in seconds. It didn't take much. Someone would look at me the wrong way at the carnival and I'd confront them. Someone would look at me the wrong way at school, I would confront them. It didn't matter what I did or where I went and so on and so forth. Even when I began to come to church, I was invited to youth group. I got into two fights in the middle of the youth group. I was constantly angry all the time. And the young lady's father, who I was dating at that time, who is the one that introduced me to God, the one who told me that if I wanted to see his daughter, I had to come to church, he was a biker. And he wasn't going to have it. He had been a Marine before that. And after a while, he saw that the anger was just absolutely eroding me from the inside. And he stopped me one evening. And he took me in a very gentle way and he grabbed me by the shirt and put me up against the wall and he says, listen, I'm going to tell you something. You're not going to want to hear it. I'm like, here we go. Now I got to to take on this biker and I was fully ready to do it. He says, unless you come to Jesus Christ and allow him to be your savior and realize how much he loves you, you're going to find yourself in all kinds of hurt. And I don't know if it was the fact that I just realized that a biker had me up against the Holy Spirit, but I just began to cry right there on that point. I knew he was right. That night, this 16-year-old kid knelt on a porch with a biker tattooed to the hilt, putting his arm around me and leading me to Christ. And I left that porch a new creation in Jesus Christ And as I was walking home that night, I felt the weight of the anger began to dissipate. And I heard the voice of the Lord, and many will object to this, but I heard him say, Eric, I don't know if you fully understand how much I love you. And I proved it and showed it by sending my only son to die for the sins of the world. Your sins. And by the time I got home, I was broken. By the time I got home, I just went into my room. I just started crying. I just said, Lord, I don't know what in the world you could ever do with a young guy like me. Everything's broken, Lord. I have nothing to offer you. My family life, everything is broken. My relationships, everything is broken. I don't know what I have to offer you. And he says, don't worry about that. Just know 
that I love you. And I just sat there in my bed. I didn't sleep that night. And the next morning I got up and I started reading the book of Matthew. Found our Bible that was, of course, tucked away somewhere in the house. And began to read about this individual named Jesus. And, and, and it was like the, God was with me. He was just speaking to me through his word. And he just kept saying over and over and over again in so many different ways, I love you. And that love just began to melt my heart, my hardened heart. And I said, Lord, I'm never going to be the same again, am I? And from that point on, I never was. And I will, have, I will tell you today, I'm so thankful that he took that anger away from me. And he started to show me, Eric, I allowed these things to happen so you would come to me. I allowed these difficulties to take place in your life so you would understand the love that I have for you. And though you weren't ado- adopted by Bob Hope, and I know you really wanted that, I've adopted you now. You are my child now. And I'm a lot funnier than Bob Hope, God said. <laughs> and my life was changed ever since. My mom and dad couldn't believe the change in my life. They would peek in on me and see that I was reading my Bible, kneeling next to my bed at 16, 17 years old, and they're like, he joined a cult. Or the drugs finally got to him. Or he's gone off the deep end. But then when they saw that the anger that I had towards them was now replaced with respect, that I began to do what my parents asked me to do in the little chores around the house, and I did it willingly. Because I wanted them to find the same Savior that I did. And I didn't have much of a testimony, but whatever testimony I could offer, I wanted to share it with them because I wanted to see them come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It took some 30 years before my mom gave her life to Jesus Christ in 2014 and after 50 years of drinking, never drank again. My dad is reading through the Bible again as we speak. He's doing it right now, I bet. But it all began with the love of God being shown and conveyed and accepted and received by this 16-year-old kid with a biker kneeling next to him on a porch in Elkrow Village. The love of God is not something that I can speak of simply in an academic manner or even in a theological manner. It's something that must be experienced in the life of the individual. And even though I had experienced the love of God so tremendously, I still wrestled with it. There were times I would confess to my wife, I can see God loving everyone else. I can assure people that God loves them, but when it comes to me, I often question it. I often doubt it because I know who I was. And then I began to read about Paul who killed Christians before he came to saving faith and wrestled with the same thing himself. How could God ever love me? Because it's an unconditional love that's not based upon what we have done, what we are doing, and what we are going to do. It's unconditional and though it's unconditional, it doesn't accept sin and, and tolerate it. it. It loves you too much to uh, leave you the way God found you. The love of God is one of the most subjects of the Bible. And it was some years ago that I must confess that as I was in the lobby of our church after a Sunday morning service, I heard a young man once say, that he felt that the love of God was overemphasized, talked about too much, and often overrated. And it broke my heart. Because as we will find out over the next several weeks, this love is so tremendous, so powerful. It is the basis of all that we do as Christians from loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, the crux, the cornerstone of the Christian faith. 
The love of God explained over and over, used 300 times in the New Testament, spoken about in such specific and eloquent manners that we may understand the impact of it in the life of the individual. I've had people from our church when they have been going through difficult times and struggling in their walk and struggling with sin and we would teach through a passage of Scripture and at the end I would remind them that God still loves them. They would often say to me, you know, it was at that moment that you talked about the love of God that my heart started to soften and I knew I needed to repent and get right before Him. Paul said it this way, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. When we understand this love, it is a love that is so tremendous that when perfectly realized, it casts out all fear. It's a love that helps us to identify that the fact that God is not a distant individual, unaware or unwilling to intervene in my personal life, someone who doesn't simply care, but that love allows me to call him more than just God the Father. It allows me to call him Abba, Father. The love of God is one of the most significant subjects of all the Bible. And unfortunately, because of the manner in which we define love today, when we talk about the love of God, it is so distorted and warped and perverse that we miss it altogether. And that's what we want to correct and rectify in our time together here on Sunday mornings. How do you begin to address a subject as immense as this, as, as important as this, that's where I began the challenge. I thought maybe we would begin in Revelation chapter 2 when the church of Ephesus was confronted by Jesus Christ and they had everything going for them. They had a lot of people come and they had all kinds of different activities taking place. It looked in all regards as a perfectly healthy church, but Jesus says, when I see you, when I look into your hearts, this is what I see. You have left your first love. I thought maybe we could start there. And then God led me to say, no, remind them of when love was demonstrated in such a significant, profound manner that the annals of history have been unable to wash it out of the minds and the hearts of those who believe it. And so John 3.16 is where we begin. John 3.16 is that moment in history where God pierces the veil and demonstrates to you and I His incredible love for us. As an individual came to Jesus by night, as you begin in John chapter 3, verse 1, his name was Nicodemus, a religious leader who by every point of fact, should have been absolutely clear and understood the Word of God perfectly, but yet was completely confused by the arrival of Jesus Christ. Confessing and admitting that Jesus was someone special, that His teaching was, uh, had such authority that they've never seen it before in such a way. And the miracles in which He rendered, He said, no one can do these things unless they are of God. But I don't understand, He said, Nicodemus. And Jesus tried to explain to him, tried to show him and demonstrate for him how eternal life is possible. And as Jesus is bringing him through and helping him understand the verse John 3.16 is given in this context. Helping an individual find salvation in Christ. And to begin the process of helping one individual find that salvation. Receive that salvation. Allow their hearts to embrace the offer of that salvation. Jesus begins with this fact. And the fact is this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now I will encourage you to read on from there to get the full expanse of what Jesus is saying. 
But this is the beginning of the introduction to help Nicodemus along the way. This is Jesus showing Nicodemus how it all begins to understand what God is doing in the life that is God the Father in the life of his son Jesus Christ. If we will understand this love from beginning to end, for the Old Testament cried to the people of Israel as God delivered them from the bondages of Egypt to be his people and to bring them into their land, his sole purpose would, was that of the fact that in all of that he has done for them, that they would fall in love with him. And as a result of their love for him, keep his commandments. And to love their neighbors as their self. That was God's desire from the very beginning. And though God showed him in so many showed them in so many miraculous ways his love towards them, they never fully got it. They never fully embraced it. They never fully understand it. Now Jesus is telling them, this is it. This is the demonstration of God's love that will never be erased by history. The fact that the Father gave his only begotten Son. When we begin this verse and when we see this verse, it is Jesus Christ showing us that the love of God is the foundational motivation for all that he has done in the manner of salvation towards those of his creations that will turn to him. And as we begin here, we will understand this foundation. And I hope and pray that this foundation will transform our thinking. Within this, we will see the love past, present, and future. The dynamic manner in which God loves us and the incredible identity that the love of God provides for us in Him. This is a subject matter that is plaguing our society today. Who are we? Who am I, more specifically? Is a question that so many people are asking themselves. Now, as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a, a, an individual who studies the Word of God, I see that the lack of our personal understanding of our identity is simply due to the fact that we have excluded God from every area of our public and social life. The farther we push ourselves from God, the more we become lost. As C.S. Lewis wrote, he said, the farther we distance ourselves from God, the more animalistic we become as a society before him. That's so true. But this love, I see this as the basis for the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the death, the burial, and the resurrection is what Paul told us very clearly is the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But what motivated the Father to set this all in motion was the love. That's why I believe that today, just as back then, we need not only to share the gospel with those in whom we interact with who do not know the Lord, but we must love them as God loves them. And as a result, allowing them to see that love through us that God has for them. Now, because of the manner in which love is distorted today, this has become a more difficult endeavor than it was 30 years ago. And we're going to address that as we go on further. For I will acknowledge that some have taken the love of God and interpreted it as enablement to continue on in sin. But again, God loves us too much to leave us in sin. He sees sin as it truly is in our life. That is a bondage that is holding us back and hindering us from the life that he has for us. Today we are told that if we love someone, we must unconditionally love them as defined by the world and accept, tolerate, and embrace, endorse, and validate everything about their personal life. But is that what God does? The answer is no. So when God says here in these beginning opening words, 
For God so loved. He is saying that I am demonstrating my love for you in this specific manner. I am demonstrating my love for you in this specific manner. Number one, let us understand that loved is in the arrow tense in the Greek, and it's something that is shown in an individual action. God is saying that my ultimate love for you has been expressed in me giving my only begotten son on your behalf, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But he goes on to say that in this arrow tense that he loved you even before you knew him. This love was something that he chose to shower and lavish you with. He didn't love you because you were the perfect person. He didn't love you because you were cute and good looking. Maybe in my case, but uh, he didn't love you because of what he thought you could do for him in that sense. He loved you, period. It doesn't mean that he loves your sin. It doesn't mean that he loves everything you do, everything you think, everything you say, but he loves you unconditionally. You did nothing to earn it and... You can't do anything to lose it. Which is an incredible reality. And this love is directed towards the world. Notice this here. And John makes it clear that he is not only speaking about those who follow Jesus Christ. There were some like to limit this love to only those who are his elect and so forth. But John made it abundantly clear that that's not what he was saying. Of course he loves those who are his, but he also loves those who are not. As one wrote, he said, the world here indicates all of mankind. God does not love man's sins or his wicked world system, but he loves people and is not willing that any should perish. John made it clear in his first epistle when he wrote, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, that is the payment, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This love is not only shown to those who are his, but demonstrated to those who are not his also. And therefore, it's so important that if God loved the world in this way, we too do not stop loving the world who does not know him. And yes, this is becoming a great challenge in our society today. When he speaks about the manner in which he Uh, demonstrated his love, it is encased in these words when he says that he gave his only son. The word gave there in the Greek is the same word that is used by one who is offering a sacrifice on their behalf or on the behalf of someone else. In the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word gave is used for an individual who would bring a, an animal sacrifice to the priest at designated times to cover and to cleanse them from the sins that they personally have committed. God purposely loved the world in such a way that it motivated him, moved him to give his only begotten son, he himself, a sacrifice on our behalf. This is what God did, what God did. He didn't owe us anything. When we fell and rebelled against him, he didn't owe us a thing. And yet he allowed his love for us to move him to give that which was most sacred to him a sacrifice for our behalf. That's the love that he had. Think of it this way. Think if you were in a situation where you found out that you were surrounded by enemies who were dying of a disease and the child that you had 
their blood carried the antidote to that disease, the cure to that disease, the immunity to that disease. And you had the opportunity of saving all those thousands of people by allowing your son to die and to give the entirety of his blood for their redemption. Put yourself in that position. These aren't people who love you. These aren't people who care about you. These are your enemies who rebel and mistreat you and use you and despise you. Could you give up your child on their behalf? This is what God has done on our behalf. In our rebellious nature, in our sin against Him, He still gave His only begotten Son. Not because He had to but because he loved us and desired us to be saved through him. He desired us to experience the life that we could have in him. To know what it means to be adopted by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To know what it means to be able to call the God of all creation, Abba, Father, Dad. This is what God has done on our behalf. We want to believe that we were worth it. We want to believe that we brought some value to God and because he has chosen to love us, there must be a value upon us in some which way that we earned and deserve this sacrifice in which God has made on our behalf. But that is so far from the truth. God had no obligation to us. And yet his love moved us, moved him, I should say, to send his son. Now, this wasn't a decision that God made lightly. The Bible clearly teaches that God made this decision from the foundations of the world. God, knowing everything that's going to take place before it happens, knew that once he started the creation process, allowed the choice of free will to come into play, allowed the temptation and so on and so forth, he knew how man was going to react to that scenario. And you say, well, then why did God ever do it? Because he loved us. And yet when he realized what was going to happen. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, that God from the very beginning chose to save us. Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Not only saving those who would turn to him, but allowing his love to be experienced by those who rebelled against him who treated his people unkindly, harshly, rudely, physically abusing them. And yet God said, I will send my son, and whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. As one wrote in Tom Constable, one of my favorite commentaries, uh, commentators, he says the Greek construction here puts some emphasis on the actual actuality of the gift. It is not God's loved us enough to give us, but that God loved us so that he gave. It's not that we had attained a certain level and degree of love that motivated God to do what he did. It's because God chose to love us and therefore sent his son on our behalf. His love is not a vague sentimental feeling, but a love that costs God gave what was most dear to him on our behalf. And as a result, Jesus wanted Nicodemus to know that whoever believes in him should not perish. I believe that everyone has the potential of being saved in Jesus Christ. There are some who hold to an idea of election that doesn't permit that. I disagree with them respectfully. But I believe everyone has the ability to be saved. Now, I do not believe that everyone will be saved, but only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I believe that God has made a manner in which by all can be saved, but only those who believe in the Son in whom God has given will experience eternal life. So as a result, Nicodemus being brought along in this uh, witnessing moment where Jesus is telling him how he can have eternal life, he is now saying to Nicodemus, you must believe. 
And so that I see that each and every person created has the potential of being saved. It's not until they believe that they are saved. And as a result, the door then is open and they will not perish. The individual who perishes is one that perishes apart from God. It's not the word annihilation where life just ceases. The Bible clearly teaches that there's an existence to both eternities, one with God and one apart from God, a place that is designated for the devil and his angels, a place of darkness and tormenting that individuals then occupy for all eternity who have died apart from God, separated from God now for all eternity because they did not believe on the sacrifice in which God provided on their behalf. Individuals today want to believe that we are good people and therefore God is going to simply accept us into heaven because we are good people. That conclusion is often uh, rendered when we compare ourselves to others on the earth. When I compare myself to Hitler, I look pretty good, don't I? If I compare myself to a serial killer, I should look pretty good, right? And those are the standards in which we often gravitate to. Or even if we find someone who has simply done something horrific or some type of crime or some type of uh, incredible atrocity, we say, well, at least I'm not in their shoes, But the Bible tells us, God tells us clearly that perfection is the standard for the entrance to heaven and that we all fall short of the glory of God, each and every one of us, Paul wrote in Romans. And therefore, we are in need of a Savior. We are in need of a substitute on our behalf. We're in need of an individual to stand in our place. We're in need of an individual who has died in our place for the wages of sin is death and that is the reality that brings about death in the life of every individual. God has provided that way. But if you reject the manner in which God provided to save you, then there is no other course of salvation for you. You know, many people want to say all roads lead to God. Well, here's the deal. That's true. But not all roads lead to heaven. And Jesus Christ said it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ is demonstrated in the salvation process. There is no other means of salvation apart from Christ. But here comes the objection of the world. Well, if God is a God of love, then how can he allow someone to perish? Have you ever been asked that question? And they think that they have you stumped until they really think about it. Yes, God does love you, but God is multifaceted in his character, isn't he? God is also just. God is also holy. God is also righteous. God has prescribed a standard by which salvation must be merited, and that is perfection that none of us can ever provide a a means by which to obtain. But what God did do is provide a way of salvation for you. So when we start talking about the love of God and saying, well, it's just so unfair that he would send anyone to hell, and I would say, well, how fair was it that he sent his only begotten son to die on your behalf? to be brutalized in the manner in which he was to save you from your sins. And if you simply place your faith and trust in him, you shall be saved. But see, love has been so distorted, right? And of course you can bring him to the illustration of the judge. The judge who, sitting on his courtroom chair, is disco- discovers that he is confronted by the reality that one in whom he loves has now been charged guilty of the crime of murder. But because the judge loves the individual who has committed the murder, the judge could be motivated to simply say, you're not guilty and you're free to go. But would that be justice to the family of the one who was murdered? Of course not. That's why the judge must recuse himself. That's why it's interesting that the Bible says that the Father gave the judgment over to the hands of Jesus Christ. 
So when an individual stands before him and says, it's not fair that I am being asked to depart from you for all eternity, Jesus can look them in the eye and say, I've done everything I could to save you. Talk about fair. We just don't like the option. We don't want to submit to his authority. We don't want to live the way he has called us to live. We love darkness rather than light, etc., The problem's ours, not God's. So as a result, many who object in this way don't understand the full totality of the character and the nature of God. And understanding, as Ezekiel wrote in Ezekiel 18.23, have, have I pleasure in the death of the wicked, God says, declares the Lord. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. I have no pleasure in this. I don't, I don't get joy from watching people depart from me into an eternity of death, separated from me from all that, for all that time. I get no joy from it because I've done everything I can to save them. They were hopeless. They were desperate. They were absolutely incapable of saving themselves, and I've done all that I can for them that they may have eternal life. And here's where we don't understand love. Because we don't understand eternal life. I am so thankful for one verse in John 17 where Jesus is praying directly to the Father. To me, it's the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. And Jesus tells us what eternal life is. Eternal life is, in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, Jesus says, that, you may know, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life, that we may know God, have a relationship with him. The word know is not simply an academic exaltation or an assent academically. It is an actual intimacy with God. It is a word that is used in the Hebrew and in the Septuagint as the intimacy between a husband and wife. A relationship so sacred to God that it was provided for by the sacrifice of His only begotten Son. For God says you haven't been redeemed, bought back from your sins by silver and gold. You've been brought back by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And as a result... This salvation, this eternal life, is that they may know you, the only true God. Eternal life begins the moment we are saved in Christ. And yet we simply confine it and often reduce it to simply thinking of it as just a period of time from the point I die to the whenever. That's eternal life. I'm going to live forever. I don't know about you, but there are, you know, you can live forever and it doesn't mean you're going to be happy and joyful, does it? It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be in a pleasant place. You're going to live forever in the office of a dentist. What? Not a joyful time for me. You are going to be living forever in Peoria. You know, But now when you start talking about an intimacy with God, when you understand the realities of heaven and his paradise that he provides. See, I don't necessarily want to go to heaven simply because it's heaven. I want to go to heaven because that's where my Savior is. I want to worship him. I want to be with him. I would love the opportunity to to hold him and to say thank you for your grace that has saved a person like me. That's the opportunity I'm looking for. Thank you for hearing that 16-year-old boy on that porch next to a biker and changing his life forever. Thank you for allowing me to go through the difficulties that I did because it prepared my heart and mind to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see that you were better than what this world has to offer. Thank you for loving me when I was certainly so unlovable. The word know here means to learn to know a person through direct personal experience, implying a 
continuity of relationship, to know and to become acquainted with beyond the point of mere familiarity. That's what this word means. When I spend time with God each and every day in this relationship that I have with Him, I get to know Him further through His Word, allowing Him to speak to my heart through His Word. I get to know Him and I see His love even greater today than I did the moment I met Him. It has grown exponentially simply because of His goodness and His grace. There are so many words God could have used here at this point. Think about this for me, with me for a moment. For because of God's grace that he gave his only begotten son. Oh, the grace of God is found through in that sacrifice tremendously. Because he didn't have to do it, but he did it even when we didn't deserve it. For the mercies of God, he gave his only begotten son. Oh, it's so true that mercy is encapsulated. Me not receiving that which I deserve and allowing a substitutionary individual, substitution to be sacrificed on my behalf. Certainly mercy is found there. For the holiness of God is the reason that he gave his only begotten son. Certainly he is holy. He is without darkness and he is pure and, and without sin completely. And there's no way I could have ever saved myself. It is only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who was perfect before the Father in every way that I am able to have and obtain salvation. But God said, Jesus said, the one who was in the bosom of the Father, John wrote in John 1, came to Nicodemus at this moment in time and said, for God so loved the world. I don't know how it affected Nicodemus's heart. I don't know what Nicodemus thought after that moment. Many believe that he became saved and was one of the religious leaders that followed Jesus secretly. But God believed that that's what was necessary for Nicodemus to hear. He could have used grace. He could have used mercy. He could have used righteousness and holiness. But he said love. For God so loved the world. John went on in John 15 to explain that this love is what motivated Jesus to lay down his life on our behalf. I believe that it was in such question at that time that John couldn't leave the subject alone. I believe that it began to be talked about and discussed so greatly, not only amongst the laity, the individuals who had heard the apostles' teaching, but I also believe that it began to echo and to sound out through the corridors of the apostles because God was revealing himself in such a dynamic way that John felt compelled to write his first epistle. And if you read 1 John, I believe that it's, he's expounding on John 15. I believe 1 John is John explaining the elements of John 15. And if you read 1 John, especially chapters 4 and 5, you discover love over and over and over again is used in such a dynamic way to move an individual so powerfully to radically change someone from the inside out so magnificently that their life has changed forever. We know that 11 out of the 12 disciples died horrible deaths due to their faith in Jesus Christ. Peter was crucified upside down. Others were dragged up and down the stairs of the temple. Some were beheaded. Some were drawn and cornered by horses and pulled in several different pieces in different directions. And many... Many say that, well, their belief was just so significant and they could not deny their Lord that they allowed themselves to die on his behalf. I think that's true, but I think it's incomplete. 
For Jesus told us the reason that one would die on another's behalf. And it simply wasn't belief, was it? I believe they loved Jesus so much that they weren't going to deny him. And of course, that love permeated their hearts and thoughts and minds that they couldn't deny. Peter was supposedly crucified upside down because he didn't want to identify with Jesus' crucifixion upright. But then there's another historical paragraph that is written saying that, G- that Peter witnessed the crucifixion of his wife prior to his own. And that if he were to denounce Christ, he could not only save himself, but saved her. We know that Peter loved his wife dearly. What would move a man to watch his wife be executed rather than simply denying the belief and the embracement of another individual to keep her safe? It could only be a superior love to that of the love that was contained within his marriage, I argue. That he loved Jesus so much. I believe the love of God will absolutely transform our lives if we allow it to do it. And over the next several weeks, we have people praying for our church that the Holy Spirit would make it so apparent on how much God loves us that everything in the world would pale in comparison. That by the time we're done, I want all of us to say that we love God so much. I have an agenda. I'm going to tell you that right now. I am going to try to motivate you. I won't say manipulate, but motivate you, exhort you to love God so much that everything else in this world pales in comparison. That by the time we are done, you are going to be so in love with him that you are going to see a dynamic rejuvenation or revival within your own personal life because you love him. Now, the Bible says we cannot love him that way until we discover one thing, how much he has loved us. For John wrote in that passage that I mentioned earlier, For we love him because he first loved us.